0: Our scripture this morning is from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 15. It should be noted that verses 10 through 12 come from Psalm thirty-four twelve to 16. Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil, and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do Suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting of the hope that is in you. May each one of us walk. And I hope.
1: Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Today, and for the six weeks following, we as a church are beginning a series of home Bible studies. We have multiple objectives in this. One is that we might grow together, that we might grow deep, that we might experience a kind of intimacy and sharing and knowledge with one another that contemporary American culture regularly inhibits. There's a kind of sharing and warmth and hospitality that often happens in homes that is uh, not impossible but harder to capture. In public settings, we pray that we might grow together and that we might grow deep. We also pray that we might be better equipped to be ministers of the gospel of Christ. That those great questions which lead to real doubts and deep doubts in ourselves and others might be addressed. That we might be better equipped to give a defense for that hope which is in us. Now, the relationship between faith and doubt has variously been structured. Some, I think, put the get two together too optimistically. So Paul Tillich says doubt isn't the opposite of faith, it is an element of faith. And Miguel de Unamono contends that faith without doubt is death. Personally, I think those constructions are too optimistic, too naive. A similar mistake can be made at the other end of the pendulum, where uh, faith is affirmed without any recognition of the importance, at least as a pathway, as a necessary condition and tool towards faith. So remember in the great 1977 film Star Wars, George Lucas has one character, Admiral Monte, say to Darth Vader, don't try to frighten us with your sorcerous ways. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you. And you remember in response, Darth Vader takes his fingers and pinches them together. And although he doesn't touch Mahdi across the room, Mahdi starts choking. And as he is asphyxiating, he sa- uh, Vader says to him, I find your lack of faith disturbing. But I do agree with those positions that see faith and doubt as related, that doubt is a necessary, inevitable, and valuable episode through which we move and must move to faith and by which faith is strengthened. According to Jan Martel in The Life of Pi, or actually... This is an essay. Uh, He's the author of The uh, Life of Pine. He writes, It's not atheists who get stuck in my craw, but agnostics. Doubt is useful for a while, but we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Or perhaps more to the point, less pithy, But more perfectly to describe my point is the great German poet, Rilke, he writes, you need to train your doubts. Whenever your doubts want to spoil something for you, ask them why. Ask them why they think something is ugly. Demand proofs from them. Test them. And you will find, instead of being a destroyer, your doubts will become a tool that builds your life. So in our studies this week, we're going to address some of the great questions which lead to some of the great doubts as we try to form faith for ourselves and for others. And the first week, two great ones right out of the starting gate addresses, doesn't science contradict Christianity? And how can we conceive of the Bible being true? bottom line on both answers, though one can spend a lifetime getting to them, is of course science does not contradict Christianity. They are compatible, that all truth is God's truth, and we don't need to approach the lists of knowledge defensively in any way. As a matter of fact, it was the Christian worldview which gave rise to science, which fostered science. It was the commitments that we have or ones very like them, which are necessary for the scientific endeavor. And um, Christians do not believe that the Bible is another great insight into the way of the world. The Bible is not a series of religious inspirations the way Shakespeare was literarily inspired. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy because it is God's outbreathed word. His very life, his very self, shared dynamically through human personality. As Psalm 19 says, it is a perfect treasure, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and it has been the experience of the Christian church and the Hebrew people for over three millennia that if we go to scriptures with our whole life and our whole heart, it will never fail us. That's where we're being pointed in one hour and one week, but there is obviously another agenda, much more, I think, more central to this study than the answers that will be shared. And that is the way of getting to the answer that is being modeled. Um, It is what I want to call winsome witnessing. We are in our nation in the midst politically of a great ideological divide. More perplexing and troubling to me than that divide is the rhetorical one which surrounds it. I find the disrespect with which many of our politicians speak across the aisle, attacking motives and characters rather than positions or policies far more disturbing, and finally far more damaging than the contending policy positions. Fair enough, contend away, do it with vigor. But centuries old rules of decorum and respect in our legislative bodies that were put in place precisely because of these kinds of disagreements, knowing that disagreements can be deep, have dissolved It is a troubling commentary on the present state of our national character. Now, more closer to home. We live in a pluralistic society, and probably there are few more pluralistic areas in the world than in Marin. If you are a Christian, your neighbor probably holds very sharply different beliefs than yours. So here's the question. Here's the question of pluralism. How can people hold very different beliefs and still get along? I remember walking on the streets of San Francisco just days after 9-11 with the wife of my cousin, so my cousin-in-law. A San Francisco city librarian, a disaffected former Catholic, she said, You know, I believe in light of what just happened that religion is dangerous. When you have absolute beliefs... You're willing to kill for them. It just shows me that religion is dangerous. We should abolish all religion. I thought to myself, walking along right by her side, what a stupid thing to say. Thank goodness I didn't say it, but I certainly thought it, and I realized with instincts like that is why I desperately need what is being modeled In this chorus, winsome witnessing. But here would have been my reflections if I could have formed them. When I was a boy in the 50s and the 60s, it was totalitarian atheists who wanted to blow us up. Who uh, were the enemies of freedom and liberty. In World War II, it was National Socialists. In the 70s, it was a communist ideologue in Cambodia, Pol Pot. Now it seems to be religious fundamentalists, but... If we can escape our cultural moment for a moment, we can see that religion isn't the source of violence. Atheism isn't the source of violence. The real source of violence is human nature. The real problem is not stopping people from making truth claims. The real question is which truth claim is going to empower people and enable people in such a way that they can speak respectfully and kindly with people with whom they disagree. So here are the options. Either we hide who we are for fear that we're going to make our neighbor angry, or we share who we are in such a way that we do create anger in others, or we share who we are and what we think and believe in such a way that itself creates peace and civility. Clearly, the third way is the only way that has integrity. Keller's goal, in the course which many of us are about to undertake, is to advance rather than harm a witnessing which is winsome in a diverse world. If I am allowed to quote myself, in the, in the flyer that we distributed about this, I wrote, Tim Keller models how we can have an open, honest, and vulnerable conversation concerning some of life's perennially most important questions. Dr. Keller shows how a robust and orthodox Christian faith can winsomely engage even the most skeptical minds and hearts, I believe, along with and possibly more than the trajectories of answers he suggests and gives. It is this modeling of non-defensive, convictional, kind, loving witnessing that is uh, what Keller is hoping that we can not only be taught the catch. Jesus models this kind of witnessing and um, I think we're going to hear about it next week. But the conclusion of it would be, as he talks with a woman of the well, he uh, has said to her when she says, in response to his request for a drink, you don't even have a cup. He says, I don't, but I have water that if you take it, you will never thirst again. And uh, she says, I'm interested in that water. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband. He says, I know you've been with five men and none of them is your husband. He looks deep into her soul and to her very heart. And she goes into the town and said, "There's, there's a man there that knows all about me, but has offered me water free and full, which is eternal. It is what my soul has thirsted for. Jesus said, I can give you water. From which you will never thirst again, because on the cross, I said, I thirst. We gather around the table, which is a token of that great gift. On the cross, Jesus suffered and died for us, his soul shriveled up, and we can taste the water from which we will never thirst again, because there, at that place, at that sight, he said, I thirst. This woman at the well, we may or may not hear more about her next week. But she was a winsome witness. She was a great witness. She went into the town and she didn't know much about Jesus, but she said she looked deep into my heart. He saw all that I am. He saw me at the bottom, and he loved me to the skies. You and I know a lot more about Jesus than she did. I wonder what our excuse will be. Father, thank you so much for eternal life. We live in a pluralistic society. We need people who share who they are, but in such a way that is disarming, respectful, loving, courageous, and brave. We pray that you would make us that. Through Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve.